Hey everyone, this is the dad who knows nothing. I am so excited to bring you this interview that I did with Victor Udekwu, a neurosurgeon here in central New York. What an amazing conversation. Uh, it's a little difficult because he's from Nigeria, so a little bit of an accent. But I promise you, if you really listen to this, you'll be amazed, as I was, at how matter-of-factly he talks about life and death situations. And what you come to realize is that in his world, the margin for error is so small, and yet he's doing things on a daily basis that is impacting lives. And for me, I, I sat there and marveled when I was talking to him because I was like, you know, I, 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 do, I do claims for a living, and this guy's here saving lives. So it was really cool to talk about his journey, becoming a neurosurgeon. Uh, he gives a few stories. He co-authored a book. Uh, just an, uh, just one of, the, one of the best conversations I've had in a while. So I hope you enjoy it. This is the Dad Who Knows Nothing podcast. In a world where everyone knows everything. <laughs> yeah, right. One dad stands below everyone and yells, I know nothing. Please welcome. Please welcome. This is the Dad Who Knows Nothing podcast. All right. So tonight I have the pleasure of talking with Victor Udeku, and you're a neurosurgeon. I mean, neurosurgeon, yeah. Neurosurgeon, okay. and you're currently working. Currently, I'm working in uh, St. Luke's Hospital. St. Luke's Hospital. And St. Elizabeth Hospital. Okay. And my office is across the road over there in Genesis Street. And how long have you been there? Three years now. Three years. Approximately three years. Yeah. Gotcha. Right. So, neurosurgeon, I got to ask, tell me the journey. So, where'd you grow up? How'd you get to be a neurosurgeon in central New York? Yeah, I came from a family, all of us are in the medical field. How big is the family? I came one of nine. Oh, wow. My okay. mother had nine of us, eight sons and a daughter. And uh, what number were you? Number two. Number two. I'm a twin. I have a twin brother, and he's a surgeon too. Wow. And I'm an elder brother, a physician, I have other brothers are surgeons too. So most of us tended to, my uncle was a surgeon, but he's late now. He was a cardiac surgeon. He trained here, but that was like 70 years ago. He came here in the 40s. My dad too, they were all here. They went to school here, but they went back to Africa in the 60s. He went to med school here, my uncle went to med school here, trained as a surgeon here. And worked as a professor of surgery, cardiac surgeon in Chicago. Great. Went back to Africa. And my dad, too, went through the same thing, you know. Essentially, went to school here, went back, had a political post or something in Africa, and then went back. But this was when Africa was still having independence from the colonial rules and all in the 60s. So there were very few people who had, who had well educated. So there's a real need for that. That to go there. back to the yeah. old, you know, to build a new nations and all that. So that was a wave. So the guys here went back, and of course I was born, and it happened. Your dad is there. You're gonna grow up there to a point, <laughs> since he's there. Right. So as a young boy, kid, I mean, I see my uncle, a very good surgeon, a very dedicated surgeon. All those worked for the churches, you know. He 
He used to run free clinics. He did a lot of charity work. I like that. So he encouraged me, you know, to get more interested in medicine, which I did. And that was it. So growing up, all of us actually went into medicine. I tended to like neurosurgery. Because out of the other branches of medicine, this is the least developed part of medicine. The least developed? Yes. Part of that is, what I mean, there's still a lot to be done. The other part of medicines, also specialties in medicine, have gotten significant development. The neurosurgery has a, a lot of things to be investigated, and um, we still have a long way to go. And I like that, you know, for us to take the frontiers, to move the frontiers of medicine. Lots so, of growth available. Lots of growth available, but of growth opportunities. Mm-hmm. So when the medical school finished medical school, went to training in neurosurgery. Where did you go to medical school? In, in Africa, and then did neurosurgical training both here and in the Caribbean. And when I came over, I was in Boston. You did your fellowship in Boston? I did my fellowship in Boston, in Harvard. The brother went at Harvard Medical School. And after that, of course, went back to the Caribbean, came back again, they worked here. But at that point, of course, at some point, my, I, I was married. So my wife was having children, I was traveling back and forth, right. you know. So where did you meet your wife? Yeah, actually, I didn't know my wife per se. He was a friend. It was two mutual friends that we met. And she came to Boston. That was why I was in Boston. Then we got married. She did her residency. She grew up here. And she did her residency and all that. Then when she finished her residency, she moved up here up to Syracuse here. Actually, she used to work in Oswego. Oh, okay. As a hospitalist. And from there, she moved over to Upstate University Hospital, where nice. she's a professor in medicine there. What specialty is your wife? She's a hospitalist. Hospitalist. Yeah, okay. so, so we have kids, you know, to take care of. Right. So he's coming How home. many kids? Um, <laughs> five of them. Five daughters, right? No, I have four boys. And a girl. And, and a girl. Okay. Yeah, so... The first two boys, the first two are boys, the girls in the middle, the last two are boys. She's in the middle of the sandwich. <laughs> yeah, she's in the middle of the sandwich. All right, wow. So my oldest is, is 11, the youngest is three. Oh, wow. So, so. it was a rapid fire. At the <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so managing family, it can be quite tenacious. You know, she goes to work, you go to work, so you have to be juggling it too. If I'm on call, like now, I'm on, if I'm on call, she's off. She, she has to bring the kids over. Right. But if I'm here, when I'm on call, I'm down here. If I'm not on call, I'm up. So I'm running two houses, essentially. Ah, okay. Yes. So um, they're in Syracuse, they go to school in that area? Every, they do everything there. Everything Nobody's here. It's Nobody's me. Here. <laughs> I'm on call and I stay here. Because gotcha. for me to respond to hospitals, I'm only six minutes away from the hospital, so that it's easy if I have an emergency, I can easily rush into the hospital, get the surgery done, get whatever it is done, and I come back. So I have to ask, mm-hmm. uh, down in the Caribbean, what made you choose Central New York? Was it mostly because your wife was here? Or? Yeah, she was moving across here. Okay. Yeah, she was moving across here, so I said, okay. But I also I had a job here, too. I was working in Syracuse, too. I worked in Syracuse initially. Then before I moved over to work in New Hartford here, you know, Utica area. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. So that was the, my journey, yeah, essentially, a neurosurgery journey. The profession being what it is, like I say all the time, you have to be dedicated. 
Right. Most of your patients are critical. Most of them are critical. You just have to know exactly what they're doing at any point in time. Little room for mistakes. Or I won't say mistake, but little room for marginal of any other thing happening. You just right. have to get everything's precision. Little margin for error. Little margin for error. Almost right. like how they had an aircraft business. Yeah. You know, everything has to be precise. There's no if one airplane goes down, goes it's down. a failure. It's a failure. No matter how many else will the, work great. Yeah, right. even though they have 5,000 aircraft flight in the skies of America any second. There are 5,000. Right. And But you expect that all of them up in the air have right. to come down. Right. Exactly. <laughs> no margin. And they have to be taking off and coming down, you know. Right. So that kind of precision is high frequency, high precision, high everything is, you just have to get it right. That is it. Right. You know, and you get used to that kind of precision, especially most of the patients you take care of. Uh, patients that are very ill, mm-hmm. critical ill, you just have to get through, get look at the scans, look at what it is going on, and then you go ahead and make decisions. So what's the biggest difference from what you see with the healthcare system here versus like in another country? What do you think the biggest difference is? There's a wide variety. I will put it this way that it all depends on how you look at it, the perspective. Now, I have friends who work in every type of healthcare delivery in the world. I have friends, my classmates, my close friends, my colleagues. I know people all over the world. I've been around the world. I've been around. So I know exactly what is going on everywhere. I have close friends, classmates who have practiced in the UK, in Ireland. I have friends who have practiced in Germany. I know Germany very well. I've been to Switzerland. I know their model. I've been in the Caribbean, I know Canada very well. You know, my friends are practicing in Canada. I see what they do all the time, mm-hmm. talk all the time, back and forth. I know exactly what happens. Now, every system, there's no perfect system. There's right. no perfect model, none. Every system has its own disadvantages. The question now is, what do you want? Like, I'll give you an example. The American system is essentially, basically, fee-for-service, Right. That is, for every encounter or whatever you do, of course, you'll be afraid. The insurance be afraid and all that. Other places have insurance. Like in Canada, they do have insurance too. But the government, essentially, is like big Medicare. Just take Canada as a big Medicare. Simple. That is, you see a physician, the bills are generated, but the government pays the bill. There's a bill, but they send to the government to pay, and they pay. There's no premium. The premiums are paid by the government. Here, you pay the premium, but there, the government pays the premium. In UK, also, no premium. There's no bill generated. You have the NHS, National Health Service. So they run the entire hospital. They do have private system too. Right. You can buy your own private insurance to see the doctors in private. But the majority of people use NHS. And it's pretty good. It works for them. Mm-hmm. They also have their problems. That is like long waiting list and all that, and you have to go through primary care physician to get any a referral to any specialist. Here, no, well, if you want to go to a specialist, you can walk into any specialist office and they will see you. Right. Of course, it's always good to come from primary care so that it's going to be refined. So right. Make so, the process easier. Yeah. yeah. So you make the process easier, but anybody can walk to any specialist office or call them and they book you in to see the, the specialist. 
in Canada, not that way. In UK, it purely has to go through the gatekeepers, like the private, the PCPs, the private care physicians. You know, they decide who is seen and who is heard, and they run the show principally. So that is the thing. The government, of course, the big cost in UK. Let's compare them. Like if you look at the cost in America, the American health system, the biggest sector of the US economy is the healthcare sector. It's not the defense. People think maybe defense is not. It's actually the health sector. The biggest chunk of our GDP is health. 20%, 16 to 20% of the US GDP and economy is healthcare. So if you also go to Canada, their cost of care is somehow cheaper than here, but also they have the problems of waiting. You see a lot of Canadian patients coming over here. They want to see a specialist and they tell them what they're going to see them in six months' time. They don't have the time to wait for it. They can come over here, America, here gotcha. and get that care. Yeah. Now, two, again, sometimes you see people, even patients from the U.S. go to Canada to get some things done, too. Or go to Mexico to get some things, especially if they have to pay for it. And it's a lot cheaper there, like the plastic surgery, this lift, that lift, Botox and all that. The Brazilians are very good at that too. So there's a lot of stuff that done in different areas because they're cheaper and people are paying out of pocket or whatever for it. Then they can source the thing. Once the skill set is good and is adequate and standard, they, they can go over and get it. So it's all personal choice and everything on what exactly you want or need. You know, there's no perfect system. No, there's no perfect system. Anybody that tells you about he has a bullet that he wants, he does it, the problem is not telling you all the truth because it's almost like you get a big giant balloon and you try to squeeze it. Once you start squeezing the balloon, so once you squeeze it, it can go to one side, but it's going to be small. (laughs) So at any point in time, there's going to be somebody that's going to be left behind. Yeah. There's no way. You're going to get everybody in the same pot. No, there's no way. There's always going to be, no matter the policy you do in healthcare, and healthcare being what it is, no matter the amount of money you put in there, you're still going to have a problem. It's right. a bottomless pit. Yep. You know, you, you can drive up the cost of care as high as anything you want. It all depends on what you want to do. So the government's responsibility is try to keep the cost down, which is good, so they can be sustainable. So that's what I look at. So for your patients specifically, are these most of your patients ones that have had stroke? You know, they're at that level of severity? Correct. I've seen a variety of patients, stroke patients, you know, patients with spinal cord injuries or spinal ailment, degenerative spines, stroke patients or brain-wise, you know, mm-hmm. variety, tumors, aneurysms, vascular malformations, fistulas, Infections in the brain, inflammations in the brain. Yes, you can co-manage them with neurologists as a neurosurgeon, but they still sometimes come to you for second opinion. You have to, you know, finally and talk to them and you know, re-examine them and all that. But that's what it is. So you see a variety of things. You see a lot of extensive variety of things. Yeah, probably see some pretty rough accidents. Situations. Yeah, trauma. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You see a lot of trauma too. Trauma, they bleed in the brain or bleed in the spine, they have fractures, uh, you know, same thing. And then you co-authored a book about stroke? Yes. How did you know? Uh, I saw it on Amazon. I looked for it. Oh, <laughs> I did. And doing my research, I, I saw that in one of your profiles on one of your health 
yeah. one of the health websites. And so I looked up the book and read the forward. So that one seemed like you were just trying to build awareness yes, for how correct. to help yes. people that have survived stroke. Correct. Not only them, but also individuals that may be helping correct. support them and living with them. Correct. Um, and how that might impact and obviously, you know, trying to build awareness in that in that country of the ramifications of stroke. Correct. So, how how'd that come to be? There was a friend of mine that the father had stroke. And getting the resources, it wasn't the problem with money. It was just that they didn't know who to turn to. How the stroke goes up, somebody suddenly he collapses. You take right. the person to the hospital, they tell you he has a hemorrhage in the brain. Then what next? You know, you take the patient to the operating room, operate the patient, the patient is back or even if it's an ischemic stroke, you manage them properly, you didn't operate on them because it's not large enough to be operated on. But they have to go to rehab to see how much function can they can regain. But what is going on, the function, there are some other things, you know, lifestyle changes mm-hmm. that are very important, you know, managing the basic problems that actually preceding the, the stroke. What are the causal you know, lifestyle activities they were doing? Smoking, drinking, you know, high blood pressure, uncontrolled ones, high cholesterol, eating habits, diet, exercise. These were you know, preventive things for the stroke. Right. Then other things also is where do you get the physical therapist to, you know, help you out with the trying to train where is the occupational therapist, where is the speech therapist? You know, all these have to be brought to bear on the stroke patient. Right. He's not just operating. Of course, that's one critical point. But if you right. don't operate that that up patient dies right there. Right. You know, within an hour that game is over. So you operate get the patient through the acute phase, then what happens? How does the patient regain function? What's the plan to support? What's the plan to support? Get them back get to, them back to the level? Near that... to the level, to the level where they were prior to the, where they had a stroke. Right. If you don't, then it's a problem. And I'll tell you too. So having to bring all the resources in one spot, mm-hmm. that is you get all the resources in one spot, so it's like one-stop shop. You don't have to oh, have to go and talk to this guy who is occupational therapist. Then after three days, they tell you, oh, you have, have you spoken to the speech therapist or where's the physical therapist? This can be not only time consuming, but overwhelming for somebody who has a stroke and the family, especially the family, because they're the ones going to be running around right. trying to right. get it sorted out. Yeah. And then not only that, remember, you have to also prevent a secondary stroke, and now I'm coming. Because if you don't, <laughs> the patient will have a repeat stroke, right. which is high already. Yeah. So that is the main issue. So what would you say from a preventative standpoint? You, you talked about some of those things, but like, what would my listeners, if there's a few things that they could do from a preventative nature, has there been one or two things that have been identified as, as a big factor in potential Stroke victims? Yes. There's a lot of things on the stroke, like I said before. Mm-hmm. Like you start from basic lifestyle changes, diet, exercise, eating habits, you know, high cholesterol food. These are clog up the arteries. Right. So the clog up the arteries, you're going to get <laughs> decreased blood supply to the brain, you're going to get a stroke. Right. A stroke is essentially death of neuronal tissues, whether it's caused by a blood vessel rupturing of, you know, Boston in duty did not control the high blood pressure, didn't take a medication, the pressure gets so high that it ruptures, you know. Of course, the areas where that blood is supplied is going to die. 
or you are eating the wrong food and then you have build up into your arteries, plaques, and then you don't have a blood supply, then the place dies off. It's going to end up the same way, but different causative things. Right. So having said that, restorative therapy, that is trying to see if you can, how you're going to restore the person back to what they were. Even if you can't restore them, most times it's difficult to restore people to where they were before they had the stroke. Right. But the aim is to see if you can restore them near. Get as close as possible. Get as close as possible that they can be functional in the society. Because once the person go, at least goes back to what they were doing, even if it's limited, but they go back to where they were doing, then it becomes easier. Right. That's why I look at it. That's one thing I think in this country that uh, I think is such a big issue is is the diet and exercise for people. To me, we're dealing with a pandemic now, right? But yeah. that, that's an epidemic that's been happening in this country for many years. It's been there because the cost of food, the one question where people don't even ask was the general population of America, were they always this, the weight or the obesity this? No, it wasn't. If you look at the pictures of people in the 20s, look at even in the 60s, 50s and 60s, look at you know, so things, they were not this far at all. Right. The population was not this big. So it's essentially excessive food production becoming cheap and cheaper. And the people, of course, people are going to consume it. Right. If you don't export it, they're going to consume it. And that's what's going on. So if you compare to in Africa, where people are dying for malnutrition, lack of food, here, problem is excessive food. Too much food. Too much food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, and with the cost of food, too, what you see is is that a lot of the healthier food is more expensive. Correct. The healthier food is expensive. The, 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 cheap food the cheap food is I, the not it, healthy no, stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's, correct. Because it's overly processed, it's, it's overly mass-produced. It's mass-produced, yeah. they over-process it, and then they end up with the problem. Yep. And then you see that they start adding sugar to almost everything. Oh, yeah. And that is the truth about it. Mm-hmm. So until they decide that, okay, why don't we socialize the fruit and vegetable? The most expensive part of a grocery shop is fruit and vegetable. Yeah. If you want to go and buy any starch or carbs, nobody really cares yeah. about it. But the moment you start going to fruits and vegetable, yeah. which is not going to do anything, you know, that is what you're supposed to be eating, yeah. you know? It's that whole thought process of the grocery store staying around the outside. Yeah, yeah, correct. You, know, you, get, the, you get the produce, you get the, the proteins, proteins. Produce, proteins. Produce, protein, protein, and then the dairy. Dairy. You know, and everything in the middle. Everything in the middle. <laughs> all the aisles in the middle. All of this. Yeah. And then it's the exercise piece, too. I mean, this country has become less and less active as we've gone along. It's part of the development. As a country gets more advanced in terms of quality of life, then you start seeing these problems. Right. Okay, I'll give you an example. If you start looking at the Chinese, mm-hmm. their weight now is increasing. The average weight of a Chinese has increased. But the weight and height has increased. So it has to do with, a lot to do with the development, mm-hmm. being sedentary development. So, like I always say, it's not a question of, oh, but if you go to Europe, the average weight of Europeans are much, much smaller than America. Europeans are much smaller. The portion of food there is smaller. Right. If you go to the same restaurant, you hardly will see buffet style food. Of course, when I went back to England, you know, twenty something years ago, mm-hmm. you hardly saw that. Right. 
But they started introducing that, you know, fancy McDonald's. Well, if you go into McDonald's in London, the portions are about half or less than half of the oh, portion. Okay. Yeah, for the same thing. Never been to London. I hope to go there at some point. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah, you go to Zurich. I've been to Switzerland. Same thing. Germany. I know the whole of Germany very well. And same thing. Yeah. So as you look at the Europeans, and because genetically, Caucasians in America have the same genetic makeup with the right. Europeans. Just like the African-Americans have the same genetic makeup with the Africans. And the Africans themselves, in Africa, of course, are much slimmer. Right. But the truth, again, is there's no food. Overall, protein in Africa is expensive. Because it's expensive, people hardly eat proteins. So mm -hmm. they eat a lot of starch, but they do a lot of physical work. Right. Because they do a lot of physical work, they tend to be very, very slim. Mm -hmm. Very slim. So you hardly will see obesity. Hardly you see obesity. Mm -hmm. And if you see it, it must be a very rich person. Yeah. The 99% of the time is a rich guy. 99.9%. Mm -hmm. But that is looking at it that way, you know, technically what, what is the problem, what, you know. But look at the Chinese, even in the Middle East now. Look at the Saudi Arabians. The obesity is so high in Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. They have the money to buy the food. So it has to do yeah. with the affordability of the food. Yeah. Once it's affordable, and of course you're going to get the wrong food. Right. And then you start pushing McDonald's, KFC, you know, mass, highly processed, massive food. Right. Yeah. And they've made that so good that people can't say no. <laughs> yeah. I, I will tell you the truth. It tastes good. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you're, you're bringing up kids. I, I have young kids. You can't get a kid to eat carrots when they have the option to eat cookies. Eat cookies you know, or candy. They're, they're going to they're gonna choose cookies. It's difficult. Right. And so if that's readily available, that's why my wife and I sometimes have been, my, my two oldest are 19 and 15. And then I have a five-year-old. So we had a little bit of a, of a gap before mm. we had our last one. And, you know, with the older two, I remember times where we would just be like, we're just not going to have it in the house. Because if it's in the house, they're going to eat it, yeah. you know. And so we would just kind of cut down on some of the processed stuff for a short period of time. And I, and I think, too, when you see in this country, there's a lot of, you know, your sedentary positions, highly technical type yes. positions. And so for eight hours a day, people are sitting at a desk. I work for an insurance company for eight hours a day or more. I'm sitting at a desk, right? Yeah. And so people are looking at yeah. these, looking at yeah. risk actuaries, you know, actuaries and yeah. all that. Yeah. IT, true. you know, technical. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we have to stand, we are operating. You stand, you operate, finish the case, you move to the next room and all that. Yeah. But that is the trade, you know. Right. And having said that, it's a lot. Looking at everything in general, as per healthcare, the way it's delivered, like I said, no model is perfect. There's going to be always limitations of any model you're trying to practice. Right. No matter what people say, usually people tend to criticize things they're already practicing, but right. they may not know the limitations of all the people. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I think there's always this reactive versus proactive kind of approach to with healthcare, you know, where it's it's like people go to the doctor, they go to the hospital when there's something wrong, right? Yeah, definitely. And, and until that point, they're not always as good about proactively keeping up to date with what they should be doing, right, on a daily basis. I'm sure you see that where you give instructions to your patients and then they get back to their home and they're not really following. 
I, I see that quite a number of time, yeah. which you come into the office, and you see the same patient going to see you, is just under the grass smoking. I've, I've seen a lot. He just had a stroke, and he's coming to see you for a visit, mm. but he's smoking cigarettes outside. And also, on, like I explained to them, if you smoke, the wound won't heal. And the worst thing that happened to a bone is smoking, cigarette smoking, which you don't understand. And it, if you fuse the bone, if you fuse it, and the person smokes, it takes much longer time to, mm. to heal. But the person was just smoking. He's smoking right in the house, right in your office, outside the office. Yeah. It's not like you went home. And, no, you see them. Does that kind of change the way you, you speak? With them, do you, no, do you I, help them to try and? No, of course I tell yeah. them to. You need to cut down. Let's be realistic. The person's not going to stop. Why did you stop? You tell you yes, he's going. He's trying. And you right. have to understand with it. This is addictive. Yeah. Sure. So it's not. I won't say. I, I can't say it's all their fault. No. Right. It's addictive. Nicotine is addictive. So you have to help them to channel them, explain to them how it is how important right. it is for them to cut down from cutting down to quitting. I don't tell you quit. Right. I know you're not going to quit. So the best thing is, well, let's agree to cut down. Right. So maybe you will cut down and we'll get the point of cut down half and half and half. And then it comes to point of quitting. Then we'll talk about quitting. But I don't tell patients to quit yeah. smoking. I tell them to cut down first. We'll pass the phase of cutting. Then we'll move to quitting. Because you tell them to quit, they're not going to quit. Right. Our target is to quit. But at this point, let's cut down first. Right. Step by step. Step by step. And you have yeah. them, you know, some of them, they go through withdrawals. You have to prescribe medications for them, nicotine patches and all that right. to get through the active phase of the cutting down, quitting. So it's possible. Yeah. Very possible. I've seen it. It happens. But you have to encourage them. Right. Go through the phase of cutting down before you go to quitting. Yeah. Have but you- the target... In our mind, we agree too that quit is our target. Right. Then we we'll go to cutting down first. Right. Yeah. When you're practicing, I'm assuming you have nutritionists or people that you can refer ones to if they yeah, don't do the diet. Yeah, correct. We do have friends who are partnered with the nutritionists mm. to talk to them about their diet. But they get this through in the hospital already. Right. Which on consult, which the patient comes in, the nutrition person comes in, goes through with you what exactly they are eating. And then point out to do the ones you can stop and which one to switch, which right. that's going to be equitable and manageable by you. Because right. if you tell a patient, I don't do that anyway. I mean, we show you. So I don't do that. It's for the the nutritional people, the diet group, and nutritionists to talk. But they usually they will go with you. They look at what you're eating and able to transition you to what you are going to afford. Not only afford, but give you high quality nutrients right. that are healthy for you mm. so they do all that that's part of the restorative therapy and preventive measures we also endeavor to do because you try to keep them away from hospital you know mm. as much as you can yeah that's good so can you tell me about a great experience that you had with a patient where it really turned out well do you have one top of mind that you, you had good success with I, I know that as a as a surgeon you know you have to keep not not emotionally distant, but you have to keep that line there, right? Correct. Because otherwise, the bad stuff would probably tear you apart. And, yeah, yeah. Anything that you can remember that was just a, a real nice story. Yeah, I remember operating on a patient. He came in. He wasn't in very bad shape. Hemorrhagic stroke, blood in the brain. The family thought he was dead already. 
and he was very near death actually and made the decision to take it to the operating room and operate on him all night. So predictably he did well, but he had a malformation in the brain. So got all of that out, cleaned him up. And he's, if you see him today, you can't believe he's the same patient. He was almost dead when we got him. When he came in, he was in deep coma. Mm. Probably if they delayed the surgery, 30 more minutes he would have been dead. Mm. How long was the surgery? Mm. Is it all night? Um, he came in around maybe 1 a.m. to, so by, I think we were done by, we are done by like five, you know, think about three hours. Because it's a vascular malformation. You have to get the images done, the angiograms done and all that investigation is done. That we're going to use it for operative planning to know exactly the supplies to the area and all that so they can get the boundaries properly when you get into the brain. Save as much brain tissue as you can. You know, because you already have a bleed there, so you have already dead ones, but you need to clean up your boundaries, mm. you know. But he did very, very well. Of course, sending to rehabilitation, he's in rehab, he's been in rehab for a while now, he's going to long term. I saw him this week, and I'm quite very, very impressed. And the family, <laughs> the family didn't know, they told me, that every time they see me, they just, they said, we never knew that he would be alive. They were 98% sure that he was going to go. They were pretty right. Not only that the surgery went, went very well, but the other things we did to support the recovery, the restorative phase of the stroke. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Wow. That's a great, that's yeah. a great story. Yeah. Must feel uh, pretty good to be right in the center of saving someone's life like that. Yeah, especially when you know that your skill set can make a difference mm. in people's life at a critical junction, mm. at a critical time or moment of their life. And it happens almost all the time. I also remember one patient I operated on. A doctor called a consult. I should come in, there's a hemorrhage in the brain. But he told me also, I shouldn't worry. The patient's going to die in the next 30 minutes. He's just calling me for formality because he has to call me. But he thinks the patient is going to be dying in 30 minutes. He doesn't think the patient is going to arrive. That patient is almost breathing, is having gasping breathing. That's the last phase of right. breath before you die. But that's what's going on now. I said, okay, but I'll come and see the patient. And I saw the patient. I said, okay, I'm going to take the patient to the operating room. So I took the patient to the operating room. And if I tell you this, that that patient walked out of the hospital with her leg, walked out of the hospital. Wow. How long after, after the surgery? She spent about uh, three weeks in or four weeks in the hospital. Oh, okay. Yeah. But she walked out. She walked out. Wow. She walked out of the hospital. But this was the patient that, they said, oh, don't worry, she's dying. Mm-hmm. We're almost 99% sure she's going to die. 99%, not 98. Mm-hmm. 99% sure. Right. You know? So do you think with you and your wife both being in the medical field, do you think it's a pretty good assumption that some of your kids will be wanting to follow that path? That's my hope, but you know how kids are. They right. sometimes do something trajectory opposite of what you want them to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that is, both of you being doctors, that they may finally, all of them will say, hey, both my parents did this, I don't want to get involved in this at all. <laughs> so that is, it can happen. And I know that. I'm very, very aware of that. Of course, I will encourage them to go into medicine, but I also have reality checking me that they may decide that they were going to do something that their father or mother never did. 
yeah. I I know that. They tell you, oh, they're gonna, but you know, kids, they they sometimes choose direct, yeah. directly opposite of what you want them to do. Yeah. So you gotta be coming side of that. I try to teach them, you know, that sometimes the reason for you to do medicine is a call to help. Mm-hmm. But look at it from a charity point of view. Do you want to be relevant? Do you want to be able to help people at the most critical part of their life? Right. Make a difference. You'll be self-fulfilling. Of course, there are other things you can do. I also do that. I'm not saying medicine is only. Right. But if you have the calling, it's good. Yeah. You know? If they see reasons to be there, my kids are still small. Three years old, five years old, 11, you know, eight, seven, they're like that. They're still kids. So I don't know how, maybe as they get older, maybe next 10 years, they'll be able to conceptualize and make up their mind too on what they actually want to be and what pathway in their life they want to, you know, what they want to do in the society and all that. That's what makes kids fun. You never know. Sometimes they do things based on what their friends are doing, not because they have a, a good reason, you know. Yeah, and part of part of growing up as a kid is just getting exposed to those different things and seeing if there is something that calls you. <laughs> so certainly having parents in the field that they're going to get exposure to all the positive and you know negative of being in the field. Yeah. Sure. yeah, yeah. I always will say that if the kids are going to be that, they have already have enough exposure to be that. Yeah. And if they don't going to be that, they also have enough exposure that will make them not to be that. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Either way, having <laughs> parents yeah, yeah. in the field will yeah. they have enough exposure their decision. to do it or not to do yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. So I leave it up to them. Yeah. Uh, my wish is yes, but let's see how it goes. That's why I put it that way. I just say, let's see how it goes, you know. Well, this has been a tremendous pleasure, Dr. Duckwheel. It's <laughs> nice to be able to chat with you about it. You give me some great stories of some wonderful successes that you've had. It's nice to hear about your journey and how you how you came to being a neurosurgeon here in this area. So thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. No problem. All right. Yeah. Thank you for joining us on our journey to learn about various topics. If you'd like to get in touch with the dad who knows nothing, connect with him at the dad who knows nothing on TikTok and Instagram or dad knows zero on Twitter. If you have a moment and you like this episode, drop us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Have a great day and enjoy your journey through this game called life.